who's your God? Now you immediately respond and would say, well, my God is the Christian God. Well, then I'd ask your question again, which Christian God is your God? Now that may sound a little strange to you, but the reality is when we start listening to messages that are being given today all in the name of Christ, when we really analyze what is being said, we find there are different gods that are all being presented under the guise of being Christian. If we think about what it means to be a Christian and to live as a Christian, we find different approaches to it. For the most part, we're complacent about it. We have no clue that the enemy of our souls has continued to be actively engaged in trying to divert attention away from the only sure foundation, the God of the Bible, the only and one true God. So I'll ask you again, who is your God? Because in Christianity, we have the word God being used, but even as was told to us back in the end of the 20th century, that's a contentless term. People say God, but we have to ask the question, what do we mean when we say God? And I ask you the question again, who is your God? We're told in Christian circles that all that matters is you're really sincere in what you believe. And obviously, we can fabricate gods of our own imagination. And we can even put biblical terms on that being that we falsely call God because it is no more than a figment of our imagination. In the same way, we think that because someone says, I'm trusting Christ, that we don't need to ask the question, which Jesus are you trusting? Even in the days of the apostles, Paul made it very clear that there were individuals who were preaching a Jesus that he hadn't preached. And individuals were embracing this false Jesus who is not able to save one from their sins. So I ask again, who is your God? And with that, how well do you know him? I didn't say no about him because the God of the Bible is a personal God who has intimate relationship with his people. So who is your God? How well do you know him? About 30 years ago, a man by the name of Hank Hanegraaff wrote a work called Christianity in Crisis. He did a revised, updated edition of it in 2009. In his preface, he says the following, and forgive me because the quotation will be a little long. He begins by 
summarizing something that should be very familiar to you. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Remember that for three years I never stopped warning each one of you night and day with tears, the Apostle Paul. The author says 20 years ago, so that would really for us be 30 years ago, I began working on a book titled Christianity in Crisis that unmasked the fatal flaws of a movement that threatens to undermine the very foundation of the faith once for all delivered to the saints. In those days, Kenneth Hagin was the prime mover behind the message. While his platform was enormous and his influence global, a new breed of prosperity preachers have taken his preaching and practices to an unimaginable height. Indeed, those who follow in his train Men such as Joel Olstein and women like Joyce Meyer are living proof that error begets error and heresy begets heresy. As such, they have taken the crisis in Christianity spawned by Hagen and popularized by disciples such as Kenneth Copeland and Benny Hine to levels that I could scarcely have imagined when I was writing in the 20th century. Now that may arrest you, but these are the more obvious deviations from biblical truth. And the God of these teachers under the name of Christianity is not the God of the Bible and is not the Jesus of the scripture either. Shouldn't surprise us because for the most part in our churches we are very irrelevant to what's going on in the world today. And often what is given under the guise of worship is no more than a pep rally to pump people up emotionally. The church has tried to make an effort to be increasingly relevant to the age in which we live. And in doing so, has often jettisoned the only thing that makes us unique and different and can give people hope. In fact, the God of popular Christianity is an impotent being who ought to be pitied rather than a God who is able to take care of and help his people in time of need. I listen to the majority of music that is being produced today. I listen to various messages, and I come away with the understanding, first and foremost, Christianity is man-centered rather than God-centered. I don't find that the biblical concept of Christianity says it wants to focus on me. I don't find that the biblical concept of Christianity says man is the prime mover. 
I find instead a God-centered focus that says he is the one who is over all things. And it is not a privilege for God to have us as his children, which is popularly presented today, but instead we are privileged to be given the right, the authority to be called the children of God. So I ask the question again, who is your God? How well do you know him? And when you get into the crisis situations of life, are you blown away? Or do you have a calm confidence that says, he is able, he is able, I know he is able. Listen to what the Apostle Paul had to say back in his message to the elders at Ephesus given to them at Miletus, recorded for us in Acts chapter 20. It's his farewell message to elders he'll never see again. Now he did communicate other truth to them that really reinforces what is stated here. But this is his last time of personally being with them. And in this message, he said, beginning in verse 25, And now behold, I know, that you, uh, I know that you all among whom I went about preaching the kingdom will see my face no more. Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. Be on your guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Be on the alert then. Remembering that night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one of you with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Now, if we take it out of that context and we put it in today, what a pathetic place to be to be commended to God. Because to us today, God is irrelevant. Even in Christian circles, by and large, he has very little place in the things that we do each day. I dare say there are very few who would be able to say with the Apostle Paul, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. We have become so embroiled in all of the prosperity that God has given to us as his people in this great land that we fail to realize and appreciate a prayer that was offered by a saint in the Old Testament where he first said, God, don't withhold my daily need lest I'm tempted to steal. And do not give me a great abundance lest I am tempted to forget you. It's so easy to focus on the gifts and to fail to cultivate the relationship with the giver. I commend you to God. Now, who's Paul talking to? Well, he's talking 
to the elders from Ephesus. Now, who are they? Why, they are Gentiles who lived in a world of a polytheistic concept of what God was like. And thankfully, Paul didn't say to them, I commend you to the God of whatever you conceive him to be. Because I know that if you're really sincere and this is what you believe God is like, it'll be well with your soul. No, I need to sit and say, who is speaking this message that says, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace? He wasn't commending them to the God of Hellenistic thought. He wasn't commending them to the God of popular ideas and understanding. He wasn't commending them to the God of man's imagination who has tried to fabricate some image and representation of what God is like and has exchanged the glory of the one true God for the glory of that which is not God and put its hope and trust in that which cannot deliver. When Paul says, I commend you to God, this is a Hebrew that is speaking. And not just a Hebrew, but one steeped in the teachings of the Old Testament. This is a man who had been trained under the most gifted teachers of his day. This was an individual that was a Pharisee by profession within the Jewish community, which means he was a Bible-believing individual. But even more importantly, this was an individual that God in his grace humbled and opened his eyes and appeared to him and gave him an understanding that that which he read about and understood to be God was someone he was ignorant of. He could recite all of the facts. This is what God's like. You and I can talk about what we know about God, why he is the omniscient one. He's the omnipresent one. He's the uh, omnipotent and omniscient and omnipresent. I knew there was a third one. We can talk about the fact that he is righteous in all of his ways. We can talk about the fact that he is full of grace and mercy. But then I ask the question again, how well do you know him? Not what facts you know about him. He's a personal being, and that's what's disclosed in the Old Testament. Go with me back to a message that Paul delivered to a Gentile community recorded for us in Acts chapter 17 so you understand who it is that Paul is commending them to, who it is that we as members of the body of Christ have to recognize as our only sure foundation. Acts chapter 17, there's Paul in Athens. And notice he says to them, beginning in verse 22, Men of Athens, I observe you are very religious in all respects. Now today we'd say, boy, that's good. We're a religious society. We have Heinz 57 forms of Christianity. The sad reality is all 57 of them are probably not true. Paul doesn't say, you're very religious, therefore God's impressed. You're very religious. Therefore, God must feel really honored to know that you want to give him some semblance of worship. 
And he knows that if you're really sincere, that's all that matters. No, Paul didn't leave it there. He says, men of Athens, I observe you are very religious in every respect. And for a while I was passing through and examining your objects of worship, I also found on the altar this inscription, to an unknown God. See, the heavens are declaring the glory of God. The firmament is showing his handiwork. Romans chapter 1, the invisible attributes, the eternal power, the divine nature are clearly seen in what has been made. And so men are without excuse. That's why the psychologists would like to tell us man is insatiably religious. It's because God has placed eternity in the heart of man. And man looks to find some way to express it and satisfy it. But instead of worshiping the true God, he fabricates gods of his own imagination. And there's the unknown God. And so what does Paul say? What you therefore worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and all that is in it. How did he do that? Well, there was this big bang. And there was this unformed blob. And somehow out of lifeless matter, life evolved. And eventually that amoeba became your uncle monkey. And you became a man. It's not what Paul understood. This unknown God, he says, who made the world and all things in it, he is Lord of heaven and earth. And he doesn't dwell in temples made with hands. Neither is he served by human hands. See, so today we have God who is frustrated. He's just not going to be able to get something done unless you get in there and do it. God isn't served by human hands. He's not in need of anything. The greatest of all privileges and the only true act of worship is to what? Lord, here I am. Thank you for your grace. Use me. Isn't that what Paul told the Romans? I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present yourselves as a living sacrifice to God, holy and acceptable, which is your reasonable act of worship. Worship is not an hour we spend together. Worship is saying, this is a being that is worth my devotion. And the devotion he will receive is a life lived for him. It's my privilege. And it isn't God is in need. Who is your God? How well do you know him? How capable is he? How big is your God? We tell ourselves and we tell others how big he is when we go through the difficulties of life and we fall apart. We say, he's able, he's able, I know he's able. Oh, who's going to help me now? I have a problem. How am I going to face it? I have a financial crisis. 
How am I going to deal with it? I have an illness. How am I going to get over it? I have personal problems. Who's going to help me with it? No wonder the church isn't commending God to this generation and world. We're pathetic. We talk about God, but we're not any better off than those that say they have no God. The rock, who is the Lord himself, is the only sure foundation to care for an individual in the storms of life. And what I need to understand is the storms are coming. And what the evil one is doing is he's raging, uh, raising up these savage wolves. He's taking people out of leadership positions in the church. And subtly he is beginning to have them embrace a teaching that is a deviation from what the scriptures state. That's Jude, right? I need to plead with you to contend earnestly for the faith that was once for all delivered unto the saints. For certain people have crept in. How? Oh, they've come in with their neon lights. False teaching, false teaching, false teaching. Not at all. They have crept in unaware. Subtle little things. What's the safeguard? for anybody in a place of leadership? What is the safeguard for the sheep of God? I commend you to God and to the word of his grace. What is this God like? Well, he is the creator of all things. He is the Lord of heaven and earth. He is not served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all life and breath and all things. This is the God who said, let there be light, and there was light. This is the God who just speaks, and it becomes reality. This is the God who merely expresses his will, and it is so. And this is the God who sent his beloved son, who has called his people to himself. And this is the only rock and sure foundation for God's people. And so Paul said to the elders at Ephesus, the only place of safekeeping is I commend you to God and to the word of his grace. Now when he said, I commend you to, I commit you to God and the word of his grace, do you understand that he didn't just leave it with a declaration that he made to them? Look back in Acts chapter 20. In Acts chapter 20, after he finishes his message, verse 36, and when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed for them all. The importance of prayer. And what's really critical? Sadly, what we very infrequently remember in prayer. We remember our daily needs. We remember our physical problems. 
But when I read through Paul's letters, be they Romans, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Thessalonica, you know what he keeps praying about? Give these people understanding in your truth. Keep them in your care. Keep them from the evil one. Isn't that similar to how Jesus said would be appropriate for us to pray? No, there's, a, there's something in the scriptures that we can call the law of portion. So you can read a passage of the Bible and you, or a book, and you can say, well, obviously what the author spends the most time on becomes something very significant. So I read through the Gospels, and I can find that in the Gospels, you have a total of three chapters out of all four of them that deal with the early life of Christ, his birth, childhood, etc. You have 30 years that pass in three chapters. But then when I get to the Gospel records themselves, what I find is they spend a number of chapters dealing with his crucifixion and resurrection. A three-day period of time. So guess where their emphasis is? So can we say the same thing? The disciples asked the Lord, Lord, teach us to pray. And if you think through the Lord's prayer, how much of it says, be focused on your temporal needs? Just one little line. Give us this day our daily bread. What should I be praying about? Father, I want you lifted up. I want you to be receiving glory. I want your will to be done on earth like it's being done in heaven. I want your kingdom to come. Then how about for myself? Lord, I stand daily in need of your forgiveness. You've encouraged my heart to know that you're a forgiving God because you've given me the ability to forgive those who offend me. The bulk of that prayer is spiritual in its orientation. Our greatest need is that God would deliver us from falsehood. Our greatest need is keep us from evil deliver us from temptation and yet very very often that is not the part of our prayer because somebody's sick is it important to pray for that it sure is someone has a problem is it important to pray for that sure it is It tells me from the instruction of the Apostle Paul, be anxious for how much? Nothing. But in everything, with all prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus the Lord. The real need, though, is eternal spiritual, unseen. And that's where our focus needs to be. I need to be praying for you that God would open your heart of understanding to grasp his truth and to grow in Christ.
You need to pray the same for myself. You need to be uh, praying for one another that God would cause his light to shine in the hearts of his people to make us to be more like Jesus Christ. I commit you to God and to the word of his grace. Well, this God that the Apostle Paul said we needed to be uh, in, in whose care we need to be is also reminiscent of the God that declared himself to be able. Just think of what God said through Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 40. When you think about what the world thinks of as God and what God has revealed in his word about himself, here's Isaiah 40, and what does he say there repeatedly? To whom then will you liken me? Or with what likeness will you make of me? See, who is your God? What is he like? How well do you know him? Is he capable to take care of your problems? So God answers this by first saying, what school did I go to? Where did I get my PhD? Who was my cabinet to sit around me and give me counsel and direction on how to create the world or put together what will be history? Who has been his counselor instructed him? Who gave to him that now God has to give back to them? We look at a world in turmoil. We see the powerful nations fighting with one another. God says the nations of the earth are dust on the scale. The nations on the earth are just a drop in the bucket. God raises up one and he brings down another. And when they become mighty and powerful, he blows on them and withers away. No wonder we read in the Psalms that we're told, don't put your trust in princes, in earthly rulers, in man, whose existence is basically the breath in his nostrils. God withdraws the spirit and he's gone. No wonder Jesus would say, don't fear those who can kill the body. Rather fear him who is able to destroy both the body and soul in hell. To whom will you liken me? Go out and look at the stars. God just spoke and he brought them into existence. And because of the greatness of his power, not one of them is missing. So how big is your problem? Do you think this omniscient God who had no counselor to tell him, here's how you ought to make the world and make a human being and all the intricacies that we find in creation is scratching his head and wondering how to help you in your problem? When you look at the difficulties that you face and you recognize you don't have the resources in yourself, Do you think this God is not able who by the excellency of his power upholds the heavens and not one of the stars is ever missing? In fact, he calls them all by name. And so in the context, he says, okay, Jacob, why do you say my way is hidden from the Lord 
and this justice do me escapes his notice. So may we update that to today? Jesus gave the story of the fact that there is a problem that you and I face. We're going to either serve God or we're going to serve mammon. And do you realize he said there are two ways that you'll end up serving this world instead of serving God? The one we're very familiar with. He says, where your treasure is, that's where your heart will be. That if I'm living for the things of this world, then materialism is my God. That's what governs and controls me in all that I do. But you know, he said a second one that is even more subtle. It's called worry. Be not anxious. What you're going to eat, what you're going to wear, am I going to have adequate housing? Who's going to take care of my daily needs? And remember how he showed how illogical it was for the people of God to think like that? Springtime's coming. The hills are going to be covered with the wild flowers and the blue bonnets. And if God can so clothe the hillsides in the splendor of all of these uh, wonderful flowers, which are here today and gone tomorrow, isn't he able to take care of you? Not even a sparrow falls from heaven apart from your father. Didn't say he knew about it. It said it's under his control. And if God takes care of the sparrow that way, aren't you worth more than many sparrows? So why, as those who profess to be the people of God, are you individuals that worry about, what are we going to eat? What am I going to wear? A preoccupation with the temporal. Therefore, the material has become the controlling influence in my life. But instead, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added unto you. And so when you face the difficulties in life, the Lord in Isaiah 40 says, They that wait upon the Lord will renew their strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary are tired, and they will walk and not become weary. It's a wonderful place to be committed to him. But you need to do something about it. If you can come to the place where you say, the God that I'm trusting is the God of the Bible, the one that's been revealed to me in this word, he's the creator God. He is the God who is Lord of history. He is also the personal God. And that personal God has an intimate relationship with his people. So David, back in Psalm 32, where he says, I kept quiet about my sin, but God's hand was heavy upon me day and night. And I was wasting away as with the fever heat of summer. I was drained. But then I confessed my sin to the Lord, 
and he forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly pray to you at a time when you may be found. If this God, the God of Paul, my God, the God of the scriptures, is your God, then you need to cultivate your walk with him when everything is going well. Because then when the flood comes and you are being overwhelmed, and when like David, as he said in Psalm 57, you will say, when I'm afraid, I will trust in the Lord. I will trust in the Lord whose word I hope. I will trust in the Lord and I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? So who is your God? How well do you know your God? And do you understand he's able? The God of the scripture, the only true God, the God who revealed himself in the Old Testament and now in the New Testament in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ is the only sure foundation of life. And he truly is able. And if your relationship is with him, then like we'll sing in our hymn, you'll be able to say that when sorrows like sea billows roll, that whatever my lot, I got this firm conviction that you've taught me from your word, it is well with my soul. Because I know whatever comes, he's working it for my good. Because I know that whatever comes, there is no one nor nothing that will ever separate me from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, the Lord. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for your truth. I pray, Father, that you would be very kind to us to deliver us from evil, to give us discerning hearts, to not fall prey to that subtle temptation that says just because people are talking about Jesus that it means they're talking about your dear son, our Lord and Savior, the only name given among men whereby we might be saved. Father, I pray that you would keep us from the evil one. I pray that you would cause us to grow in our understanding, our walk, and our devotion with you each and every day. To the glory of Christ Jesus, our Lord, we pray. Amen.